Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, and that caviar is a garnish. And I'm Ned Baker, and I tried having cyber sex once, but I kept getting a busy signal. I love the way it's Heather Burns is her name reacts, and she's like, oh, yeah, that's a bummer. <laughs> is Heather Burns the, like, younger girl who yeah. works in the shop? She's amazing. She's so good. It's such a casual reaction. The way this podcast works is that Ned and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. Ned, this is the final installment of our Meg wow. Ryan retrospective series, which I feel sort of like we just started, even though yes. I also feel like we've been doing it for so long. <laughs> like it's been a year and a day since we, yeah. since we last talked, yes. <laughs> but what we've covered so far is uh, her kind of big breakout debut in 1989's When Harry Met Sally, her great character actor turn in 1990's Joe vs. the Volcano, another Nora Ephron rom-com classic that paired her with Tom Hanks, 1993's Sleepless in Seattle. We took a little bit of a swerve last week to look at her voice performance in the animated film Anastasia. And now we're going to wrap things up with what is the third in her trilogy of movies with Tom Hanks and, separately but interconnectedly, the third in her trilogy of movies with Nora Ephron, 1998's You've Got Mail. Yeah. Ten years of movies. Nine years of movies. Basically the 90s. Yes. Just really. We, we just did a series of 90s. And I think we have talked and will continue to talk today about why, why that is natural for her career. Unfortunately, but yeah, that's that's the shortest span I think of anyone we've done, including including Dev Patel, who's <laughs> like what thirty two <laughs> years old. Yeah, um, it is a really short. I feel in some ways I feel like it was really fun to go like deep in this one specific period, mm-hmm. but in other ways I feel like I'm excited for this episode to broaden out a little bit as we wrap up and look at some other elements of of Meg Ryan's career. Because, um, yeah, she has had one. You know. She has had one. Uh, but first, it's kind of been a little... Our podcast has been coming out, but for you and I, it's been a little bit since we last recorded. So, uh, Ned, how you been? Any any big updates in your any life? Any big updates? Yeah, a small one. I've been I've been okay, but not great. I, I had COVID. Bum, I, bum, I, bum. Technically, I still have it. I'm still... I'm on my, I think, we're not. 11th. We're recording not in the same room. <laughs> we're not in the same room. No, and, I'm, and I haven't gone in the same room as, as uh, Emily for like 11 days i just have been living you've been having a you've got male relationship that's right that's right actually you went so method for this episode you had to get covid too yeah i mean we've literally been uh video chatting and talking through the door that's that's been it um and that has not been uh super duper fun i admit um i didn't have to go to the hospital or anything so that's good but um, yeah, I don't recommend it. wasn't yeah. wasn't wasn't my favorite. wasn't and isn't the my my uh, the highlight of my year. I no. think. But you know, I'm I'm glad I'm healthy. And you had speaking. it on your birthday, which was a bummer. But happy birthday right. hey, from the roll calling much. family. <laughs> thank you very much. Yes, I had a I had a birthday in bed, but everyone was extremely sweet, and some people like sent me dinner and stuff. Um, and uh, I didn't just get COVID. I got a cat, a foster cat. Wait, I actually don't think the COVID I knew about. I actually don't know if I fully knew that you you kind no. of referenced something about a cat, and I just yeah. went with it. But I don't well, his, think I got the full story. His name's Gary. He's a foster cat that we're taking care of while his broken leg heals, so he's got a little cast. 
And he's very vocal and may, in fact, uh, be an unannounced guest on today's episode because he does not like to not be paid attention to. Well, of course, he's a huge Nora Ephron fan, so he couldn't not weigh in. Of course, of course. (laughs) He he will share his opinions. Um, I don't know what sort of content warnings I can give for them, but he's going to come in fast and loose. Um, Yeah, that uh, that was this past week for me. Uh, We didn't record for a while because you also had some news yeah more exciting news i went to the south by southwest uh film slash music slash tech festival in austin for a 10-day work trip covering it for fox digital which was like my first time traveling since the pandemic in a major way also just like my first time traveling in a major way in like six years So kind of uh, major on multiple fronts, Uh, a very surreal experience. I went to a Dolly Parton concert. Oh, so jealous of that. So good. Ned, it was truly like the best live performance I've ever heard in my life. I believe it. I believe it. It was amazing. I saw a movie where Nick Cage plays Nick Cage in the same room as Nick Cage, (laughs) which was the most surreal thing I think that I will ever experience in my entire life. Sitting yeah. in the same row, technically, a couple seats in an aisle over. Ate some tacos, tried to see some bats, but they weren't there. The alleged you know? bats of Austin, who also, I, as I said, I feel like they, I feel like the bats have a reputation for not showing up. Yeah, well, they, they didn't show up famous, for me. Yeah. But it was, it was lovely. It was very fun. It was very exhausting. And then we took a little break and now we're both in our separate <laughs> roads to recovery that's right uh, from two very different experiences and back Mm -hmm. on the the podcasting beat and it feels good to be back feels good to be walking that beat even if actually what i'm doing is just sitting in a chair in the same (laughs) damn room i've been sitting in for two weeks but yeah good to be back and i hope that we came back with the movie that you enjoyed although i believe you said you haven't seen this before so waiting with bated breath to, to tell me what did you think of you've got mail uh I adored it. <gasps> Ned, yay! Yeah, I really oh, good. Liked it. I really oh, I was kind of nervous because you were a little mixed on Sleepless in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I liked it more than Sleepless. I think. Uh, I'd, I think right now I would be. I will probably rewatch this one sooner than I rewatch that one. And yeah, something about Sleepless that I I just feel like maybe doesn't like speak to me overall quite as much. And I guess I'll get it out of the way as predicted by you several eight, eight, eight weeks ago it still can't top when harry met sally a near perfect film um but i thought there was just so much to love in this one so many good good bits and good scenes and so much heart and an interesting sort of an interesting central question is being grappled with there and it wasn't exactly the one that i expected uh and of course the you know inestimable incomparable Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks continue to do what they have so faithfully done through the past collaborations there, as we discussed, which is just be extremely watchable and extremely likable. And we have another fantastic Nora Ephron ensemble cast to enjoy. Uh, so, yeah, I was I just had a blast with it basically from jump. You know, I was I was loving it from the beginning. Oh, I'm so glad. I had a really similarly lovely viewing experience. I also feel like I currently want to rank this above Sleepless, but I wonder if it's just because I saw this more recently. Because I also I was higher on Sleepless than you were. 
Yeah. So I don't know. I'd have to rewatch. I did. So we, we, you very kindly allowed us to push back our initial recording period because I was feeling a little bit busy and overwhelmed. So I had watched You've Got Mail the day before we were supposed to do that recording. Oh, I see. And then I didn't have anything to do today. And I was like, I'll just watch it again. <laughs> so did you? I've, yeah. Just, wow. I mean, not, not out of any sense of obligation, just because it seemed like a fun thing to do so i've kind of you know i think it speaks to how charming this movie is that i watched it twice within like a three or four day span and really enjoyed it both times Enjoyed yourself great yeah i think it's just a super like watchable sweet i mean it's all those things that people love about Nora ephron films and why i think people like always refer to these movies as comfort watches because they really Mm -hmm. are just like they just go down so easy yeah they make you feel so good but they're also so smart you know like it's just so clear that Nora Ephron is so philosophical and intellectual mm-hmm. and so interested in, you know, the human condition and thought and intelligence, but in a way that is, there are people interested in those things who make things that are not nearly as digestible as these things are. They just are, which is just really, I think, like artistically humane. Mm-hmm. Um, my watch today is that I, I watched the Nora Ephron documentary, Everything is Copy, on HBO Max. How was that? Um, great. Oh, really great. It. It's it's very sweet. Um, it's made by her son. Oh, I'm going to forget his first name. Because he's not Sam Bernstein. That's the lawyer who used to put ads in Detroit. It's Jason Bernstein or Jacob Bernstein. Now I feel, I feel dumb. My cousin um, actually was an executive producer, helped make this movie. Um, Very cool. Not my cousins that we interviewed for the Mary Poppins episode. <laughs> yeah, that would be very impressive if those- Different cousin. What five and eight-year-olds were producing <laughs> movies. But it's clearly like, it's a labor of love from her son. Um, and all the interviewees, there's something that just so touched me at all the interviews saying like, your mother understood mm-hmm. relationships better than anyone I ever met, you know, and and retreading all these sort of different steps. And I I learned so much about her- marriages and her passing which was extremely tragic and sudden mm-hmm. and um yeah it's uh, i i i loved it i totally recommend it if you have hbo max and you have any interest in any of these any of these nora efron films we've discussed or just what her whole deal is or just you like documentaries uh check it out mm-hmm. i her son's name is jacob i just looked there it we up go. okay so good job jacob bernstein and you've got mail is also streaming on hbo max you can just go right on in from yeah, You've got hop, mailed everything from is one to the other. Yeah. Back and forth. Yeah. Did you know that she was married to Carl Bernstein? Of I did. Bernstein and Woodward? Yes. Fascinating to me. Yeah. And she, I don't know if they covered this in the documentary, but she for years just knew who Deep Throat was by the nature <gasps> really? of being of married to him. Of course. And they had a very wow. acrimonious divorce as very. depicted in her novel turned movie Heartburn, or sort yes. of like a fictionalized version of that. With Meryl yes. Streep and Jack Nicholson. But for years after their acrimonious divorce, she would just like tell everyone who Deep Throat was. And everyone would be like, oh, Nora, you're so kooky. And then like, it's, that's who it was. So for Wild. years, everyone was like, what is the mystery? Who is this man? And Nora's like, oh, yeah, it's just this guy. I find that to be a hilarious story. Definitely. Yeah, she's such a cool lady. And I'll have to watch that documentary. Yeah. Speaking of cool, ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> Yes. There's a transition for you. <laughs> sure. I just wanted to uh, cover a little bit since since we've kind of like snuck in a mini Tom Hanks mini series within our Meg Ryan mini series. Yeah. yeah kind of wanted to look at what their their careers were like between Sleepless in Seattle, 
which was 1993, and then this movie, which is 1998. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a pretty big time for Tom Hanks and a less big time for Meg Ryan. Yeah. And I think it's kind of, you know, Tom Hanks in many ways is unique in his career, I think. So it's not exactly like, well, he did this, she should have done it too. But I, I do think it's just like an interesting parallel to draw sort of what he was able to do and what she was able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we talked about in our Sleepless, or probably in our Joe versus Volcano episode, actually, how they both came from a background of like comedies and rom-coms. Uh, and television. One thing, yes, and television. And one thing that I actually hadn't realized until I was digging into stuff a little bit more, but the year she did not get nominated for One Harry Met Sally, which I think we agree she should have been nominated for an Oscar for, Indeed. he did get nominated for a Best Actor for Big. Which I think is an interesting example For of those big. are both, yeah, the movie Big, where he wow. plays the kid, comes yeah. adult, dances yeah. on the piano. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That big, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I thought that was an interesting, again, you know, nothing, no t- two exact instances or, you know, exact parallels. But I was like, yeah, interesting that he gets kind of a light comedic performance that gets nominated and she doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that kicks off this kind of crazy run that Tom Hanks has where he stars in philadelphia hanks mania is in full swing he stars in philadelphia wins the best actor oscar for that Mm -hmm. the next year makes forrest gump and wins the best actor oscar for that so that's like a crazy back-to-back run yes then he makes apollo 13 one of my favorite movies ever does voice acting in toy story Uh uh-huh I would say more iconic than her voice acting in anastasia as much as i love anastasia (laughs) iconic yes yes you are a toy! <laughs> uh, he writes and directs That Thing You Do, another one of my favorite movies. Oh, I never seen that one. Oh, we should do, we should, okay. We, if On we our ever do Steve Zahn series. I, yeah, oh my God, we could. But no, I think it should be for our Liv Tyler series. Oh. I love Liv Tyler. Yeah. Then after That Thing You Do, and five months before the release of You've Got Mail, he makes Saving Private Ryan. Which is wild to me that in July, people went to theaters and saw Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan. And then in December, whenever they went to theaters and saw Tom Hanks in You've Got Mail. That does feel so strange to me in a way I cannot articulate why. Something so weird about going and doing Saving Private Ryan and then just doing this? (laughs) Yeah. After, like, after, you know, you saw those, like, brave young men shot to death on the beaches of Normandy, you're able to just come back here and, like you know, boop around Zabar's doing physical comedy. Yeah. Like, it's that's just, uh, I don't know why that, I, it's, it's almost like he feels older in Saving Private Ryan, but I picture I them, I'm like, no, they look the same. And I don't know the production order. Like, I don't know. It's possible he even filmed You've Got Mail first, but just in terms of the public image, like wild to come out in the summer and see this harrowing war film and then just a lighthearted yeah romp around christmas time he also gets a best actor nomination for saving private ryan Mm -hmm. meg ryan's uh career in between those movies is like a little quirkier i would say it's a very 90s run of movies it was a lot of movies that i have like vaguely heard of but haven't seen Mm -hmm. um i won't go through them all but just a couple major ones she's kind of has three categories of movies she's working in at this point she's continuing to do romantic comedies so stuff like French Kiss with Kevin Kline, um, a, this movie called Addicted to Love that's sort of like a more of a dark comedy with Matthew Broderick. One I have seen is a movie called IQ. I don't know if you've ever heard of or seen this movie, but Never it's like it. 
it's like a, a little rom-com, but uh, Walter Matthau plays Albert Einstein. It's like her quirky uncle who's like encouraging the romance. Well, Einstein is not the romantic figure. It's not it's, the romantic. No, the uh, I forget what's who's the it's guy. Einstein's that plays the lead. niece. Tim Robbins is like oh. a is like a mechanic, like a working class mechanic, and she is like a smart mathematician who's Einstein's niece and he's like i'm the quirky uncle who will make you two fall in love <laughs> and like goes on antics this movie was just on i feel like on tv at my grandma's TV house <laughs> sometimes go figure so not maybe one of her most iconic <laughs> romantic comedies but she no, was doing it for me she had a little more success with this like romantic dramas she mm-hmm. made one the same year as You've Got Mail. She stars in this romantic fantasy with Nick Cage called City of Angels, where he's like an angel who wants to give up being an angel because he falls in love with Meg Ryan. That's the first of these movies you've mentioned that I actually could like picture what it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then she also made, I think, got some pretty good acclaim for a movie called When a Man Loves a Woman opposite Andy Garcia, which is like a romantic drama about a married couple. And she plays, her character is struggling with alcoholism. Uh-huh. And so I think that was seen as like a pretty solid turn. She got a SAG nomination. Her husband, Dennis Quaid, around that time had been struggling with addiction issues. So she talked about how it was sort of like cathartic to be acting out like the other side of that struggle, uh-huh. which was interesting. Yeah, then. Interesting. She also does a couple dramas, which neither of these, the ones I'll point out I have seen, but both like really caught my eye. One, I just couldn't believe I'd never heard of this. It's called Restoration. It's a 1995 period drama set in the, in the court of Charles II in England in the 17th century. In the Restoration. Yes. In which Robert Downey Jr. is like a physician who's brought on board, I think first for like a romantic reason, but then he ends up like trying to cure the plague. And wow. it's got like Sam Neill and Hugh Grant and all these famous people. And I was like, it's just, movies can just disappear. I had <laughs> never heard of that movie. No. Wow. And so I think that's kind of like a rare, like, period piece for her, I guess. I don't yeah. know if it was super well received. I was just shocked that I'd encourage everyone to look up the trailer for Restoration because it yeah. just felt. <laughs> I certainly will be looking that up after this. And then the last one I'll shout out is this movie Courage Under Fire, which is a like a war drama, but more of more of like almost like a courtroom procedural starring Denzel mm. Washington. But he's like a military guy who's looking into potentially giving Meg Ryan's character, making her the first woman to like receive the Medal of Honor for active mm. combat duty. But he's got to like go and interview you know, the soldiers to find out the real story of what happened, which just feels Uh like all of that feels like a very 90s, not quite John Grisham, but a little bit of a, I don't know, military conspiracies. Yeah, I mean, what was a a few good men was probably right Mm -hmm. around that exact same time, most iconically. So that one, I I kind of wish I had uh, found time to squeeze that one in because the trailer seemed like she was playing like a very hardened, you know, like military helicopter pilot, which seems like an interesting swear for her but that's what she's doing while while tom hanks is giving us like maybe six of the most iconic movies ever she's kind of in this space of (laughs) six of uh six or seven or eight of not the most iconic movies ever to be sure exactly yes kind of bouncing around trying to find her groove and Uh i think doesn't maybe quite find it again until you've got mail which like we said reteams her with both hanks and efron uh nora efron i'm sure your documentary covered this but nora efron wrote this with her sister delia Mm-hmm. It is based on a 1940 Ernst Lubitsch 
rom-com. I got really nervous about saying that name. I hope I said it right. <laughs> uh, based on a rom-com called The Shop Around the Corner with Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan, which was based, that was based on a 1930s Hungarian play, and then has gone on to inspire all sorts of different things. There was a Judy Garland movie musical in the 40s and a really sweet Broadway musical in the 60s called She Loves Me, and then becomes the source material for You've Got Mail. So like very, just a solid little concept for a romance, I guess, that keeps on giving. I saw... She loves me once upon a time on stage. I don't remember it that well. I'm trying to remember, like, what are the elements of that original play that are adapted here? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe we should discuss that after the plot summary. But yeah, I mean, we can kind of do both. Like, here, so just the basics of Shop Around the Corner before we, I'll I'll throw it to you to like give yeah, us a little summary of You've Got Mail. But okay. Shop Around the Corner, the basic setup is that it's two co-workers or the basic setup for all the other adaptations is it's two co-workers who work in the same the shop changes sometimes it's like a perfumery and sometimes it's a leather goods store but they're just mm-hmm. two co-workers who bicker and are secretly also writing off these little letters to some sort of little mail and like correspondence thing okay. um they find in the back of a newspaper and so they're writing these letters where they're falling in love over letters meanwhile in their little shop they're always bickering and mm-hmm. then it comes out that they are, you know, in love and everything's fine. Right. So You've Got Mail, I think, adds some, like, interesting and purposefully kind of thorny layers onto that, mm-hmm. which I'm excited to dig into. But do you want to first try to give us a little, maybe a better plot summary <laughs> yeah. You've Got Mail than I just offered for <laughs> the shop around the corner? Sure, sure. I never come ready for these things, but I'll try to do it. So, so the uh, that same premise is taking place... But in the internet age, as we see through a very fun, uh, you know, low-key CGI um, opening credits sequence, which I just wonder what, like, anyone Gen Z or younger would make of this title sequence with its, like, horrible dial-up noises and its little CGI New York City. I felt sort of weirdly, like, romantic and nostalgic about it, although Mm. at the time I think it was probably seen as, like, futuristic and alien. But we have these two characters... Kathleen Kelly, Kathleen Kelly, who is a the owner of a cute, adorable little independent children's bookstore called appropriately The Shop Around the Corner. And Joe Fox, FOX, of Fox Books, a multi-generational, multinational, multi-million dollar book megastore, essentially like an analog for the sort of like most odious aspects of Borders or Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. And the good aspects, I would say, actually. Well, yes, as it, as it goes along, I think they complicate that in an intelligent way. But these two people, the first thing we learn about them is that they are corresponding via email, via AOL, uh, which provides You've got the, mail. You've got mail. The iconic little noise that, uh, that gives the film its title. Um, despite emailing being not, I think, maybe necessarily the central focus of the film, but they they have a no personal details correspondence with someone that they met over the chat room. They have no idea who the other person is. They have no idea that, in fact, they are often walking down the same streets in the Upper West Side of New York, passing each other at that little triangle-shaped park and... Going to the same Starbucks. Going to the same Starbucks, etc. As the tagline of the film says something like, the person... The person you pass on the street could already be the love of your life. So wow. they, 
they a good tagline. Are, that's, yeah, I might have misquoted it a little, but it's something to that effect. So they are carrying on this, I'd say, slightly flirty friendship while also both in relationships. Her with a uh, journalist played wonderfully by Greg Kinnear and Such him a with good performance. a publisher, slightly more shallow character, but also played wonderfully by Parker Posey. Mm-hmm. Um, two just absolutely top-notch supporting uh, actors there. And the tension arises because Fox Books, the megastore, is moving in down the street and therefore uh, existentially threatening the livelihood of the shop around the corner. And there are a number of hijinks. There is first a whole twist where they meet when he is out being a cute sort of uh, dad for a day figure with two kids who, because of some interesting generational shenanigans with his father and grandfather. The kids are actually his uh, cousin and uh, an aunt, I believe. I think it's his aunt and his little brother. His aunt and his little brother, that's right. As um, he says, we are an American family. Yes, that was the that was the line my mom teased me. She's like, oh, you haven't seen You've Got Mail? We are an American family. You'll Aww. just love it. So, um, so they meet and he tries to hide from her his last name so that she doesn't realize he is part of the big bad book store chain. Um, Eventually it comes out. They are highly antagonistic in person. They have this, as we've discussed many times, oil and water, Beatrice and Benedict relationship bickering. He is, uh, as they share with each other's online avatars without realizing they're discussing each other, he is constantly able to uh, whip out these venomous barbs that he then second guesses and feels like he said something bad and worries that he's a, a negative person, a negative version of himself. Whereas she always freezes up in the moment and he says, I wish I could just send all my zingers to you and then I wouldn't have to feel bad about them. But this goes on for a time and he advises her through email to go to the mattresses, as he learned from the Godfather, fight, 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 fight. Uh, and they attempt to resist, and yet the sort of winds of change are inevitable, and the shop around the corner is ultimately driven out of business, something that is viewed, I think, as a bittersweet plot development. Mm-hmm. As she, she has asked herself, have I kept doing this because I like it, or have I, have I kept doing it because I'm afraid to change? But he becomes aware... They're supposed to have a little blind date. Exactly. And he sees her and realizes, though she never realizes this at the moment, uh, he realizes that the person he's been corresponding with is actually Kathleen Kelly. After that, he goes to her house and there's a scene which we can discuss. I sort of thought was her revelation, but it isn't. They they become friends, um, much like Harry and Sally. Mm-hmm. after having an acrimonious relationship, essentially agree, like, let's just become friends. And they do some very what Harry met Sally things, like walking around in the parks and going to farmer's markets and yes. such. As Joe and Kathleen, while he is simultaneously still communicating with her online, unknown unknown to her, exactly. he's also NY152. Yes. And in the end, arranges to meet with her and reveals himself in what also feels like a sort of a Shakespearean lifting of the veil as we see in in mm-hmm. moments in in um much do about nothing and in as you like it she realizes who he is and she says i i wanted it to be you i wanted to be you i wanted to be you so badly which is a hell of a line to sort of like sell the last 
the last moment and make you feel good about it. They kiss. His adorable dog jumps up on them. The camera raises into the air. That's You've Got Mail. Nailed it. Thank you. So there's some stuff here that is almost directly lifted from The Shop Around the Corner, the 1940s movie, particularly the date scene, the sort of blind date scene where she's already sitting there. She's got her little rose in her book to mark that she, you know, is who she is. And in the, and you've got mail, it's Dave Chappelle, a wonderfully like kind of cast against type. Dave Chappelle is just like Mm -hmm. Tom Hanks's chill friend buddy yeah yeah and and he kind of shows up and he's like if you don't like kathleen kelly you're not gonna like this girl she is kathleen kelly <laughs> yeah. all of that and then the whole cafe scene is like almost verbatim from the 1940s movie oh wow i think the main difference between that and you've got mail and also maybe the thing that makes people dislike you've got mail if they do is the idea that instead of just being rival co-workers they are like competitors mm-hmm. and that he actively i mean not necessarily purposefully but like his business forces her business to close down yes that's like a whole ethical conundrum that is not in the source material that the efrons kind of just like create for their version very intentionally in a way where they sort of said they were interested in in, in the same way that you know like some of the movies we've discussed have their central question, like, can a man and woman be friends? Although you know, we discussed that's not really the central question. But um, but they were like, could you fall in love with someone who was – I think they basically actually said it. And it's funny that I, I had been thinking this. They were like, can you fall in love with a Republican? Yeah. Basically, like, what what is it they, – they were interested in, I think, creating not just your normal oil and water, but in, like, what if the guy really has something about him that makes him kind of odious – but as he kind of asks towards the end, like, what if we hadn't had this? What if we just met just mm-hmm. as Joe and Kathleen? Um, and it is interesting. That is an aspect of the film that I was prepped for, again, in a way that I think was not accurate. And I do sort of blame, like, it's a lot like when we talked about sort of people's bad faith Twitter takes on on Walter and Sleepless in Seattle mm-hmm. and unoriginal takes on Nate. In the, Basically, I feel like people talk about this movie a- as if it is ignoring the fact that he is a, in a mega business that drives her independent business out of business. And in fact, that's like the whole thing the movie is mm-hmm. grappling with. It's exactly it. It's it's just people on Twitter are so freaking annoying, man. You know, There can be a lack of understanding of when something's intentional. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. I'm like, y- you might object to this, but but to to say that the movie is like, unintentionally creating this dynamic when like that's what they discuss from basically the beginning to the end of the movie time and time again so as if the movie's like did you know if you actually rewatch you've got mail it's actually really problematic because it's promoting capitalism and it's like yeah that's what the movie's about that is is, yes it's i think it'll be (laughs) inaccurate i feel ultimately inaccurate to say it's promoting capitalism because because his business wins in the end and then she falls for him anyway. I think it is particularly interested in grappling with that sort of thorny tension. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very it's very cool to see. And I again, really... they can pull it off because of these performances and the writing. And, you know, it, I think they pull it off. I agree. I really love Roger Ebert's review of this movie. Yeah, hit me. Which really like digs into i think the bittersweet like ambiguity it lives in 
and he yeah. talks about I feel, I'm I I might be misremembering the review exactly, but I feel like he closes it by talking about the scene where Kathleen finally goes into the like Fox books, the Barnes and Noble essentially, and like it's beautiful. He's like a lesser movie would have filmed this like oh here's the gross ugly store no one wants to be in. But actually, it is a beautiful place. And like people are there and reading and drinking their coffee and they're really happy. And then she goes to the children's bookstore or book area and like all the kids are reading and that's great. But then somebody comes in to ask the clerk a question and like the clerk does not have the sort of personal depth of knowledge that Kathleen Mm -hmm. has. And so he all he can do kind of is like look up, you know, if somebody has an exact author or book title, they they know he can look it up. But when somebody comes in and says, oh, somebody said to get the shoe books for my daughter he doesn't like know oh she's referring to the ballet shoes books da 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 so like kathleen has that knowledge and so eber just kind of like describes the scene and like it's beautiful but then she answers a question that he can't answer while she's crying and i'm pretty sure his review just ends by going like whoa (laughs) yeah (laughs) which i think is right like the movie is sort of living in like these things coexist this is great like barnes and noble is great for all these reasons and it's not good for this reason and that's the, the way it is there's no like answer you can give that's just the reality we live in yes and i love that i love when a movie is you know interested in in grappling with like complexity and contradictions and yeah those things that feel very real and again i think that's something we are seeing sort of time and time again with nora efron and yet it's like it's all this complexity and all this sort of like maturity and yet it doesn't feel like medicine you know it just feels it's in this you know agreeable package but right it's yeah so I, light. I totally love that scene yeah yeah that seems great the, yeah it's just such a well balanced movie like i mm-hmm. think people that people that love this movie love this movie in a way that i actually think is distinct from sleepless in seattle or when harry met sally there's something about this movie that if you are a fan if you've got mail like you're just really a fan i think there's something about the sense of like community and place it creates, which mm-hmm. I think was something Efron really wanted to do was that totally. sort of when Harry met Sally was like a love letter to New York City in general, and they kind of go all over the place. But that this she wanted to emphasize this idea that New York is all of these little neighborhoods and like their own little villages. And so mm-hmm. this was like a love letter to the Upper West Side. And the specificity of that world. And she was really particular, Efron was really particular about having the same extras in all of the various scenes where Kathleen and Joe were like walking to work. She would like repeat the same extras. So it's not just that they're always on the same path. It's like everyone else in their world is the same path. And there's all these little details about like the the florist that early on we see Meg buying some flowers from is pregnant. And then later on she goes back to the florist (gasps) and there's a sign in the window that's like, it's a girl. And just like all these little touches to sort of flesh out this little communal feeling. Oh, I love that. I love it too. It really does. I think it is more, I would say this to me was even more of a powerful love letter to New York than her previous two films that we've watched on here. I mean, Sleepless takes place there at the end, you know, so it's really, that's really more about the Empire State Building than anything, but... Yeah, When Harry Met Sally, I think, is a great New York movie, but this one feels like it is really, like, actually discussing, actually examining the way community works around there and the way that, you know, you just, in that early sequence 
where they're just passing each other on the street time and time again. And then in a later sequence where they're comically passing each other time and time mm-hmm. again while trying to avoid each other, which is a hysterical physical comedy sequence. It is really, I think, like making a statement in that about that improbable but true phenomenon of big cities where you will feel like you are constantly running into the same people time and time again, which if you spend any kind of time in a city, you will experience. And it is this it is this like magical realist feeling. You're like, how did you happen to be right here, right as I needed to bump into someone? Like I've had yeah. that in- Oh, uh, I've had times in Chicago where I'll be on a bus and like someone I know will just get on the bus. And like, what are the odds of that? That we're on the same bus in the same place when we don't necessarily live in the same neighborhoods. But it happens. I'm sure there's a clever. I'm sure there's a clever podcast explaining how actually the odds of it are greater <laughs> than our human brains are able to comprehend. But yeah, it feels magic, and this this movie feels like it's really getting into that. And 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 then yeah, like the you know just scene at Zabar's, which is clearly like a you know a love letter to that location, mm-hmm. and and it's 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 playing with old New York iconic traditions, but also playing with the kinds of carbon copyable mega things that also just exist in cities like there's most iconically this bookstore at the center but there's also as you mentioned i think a a whole starbucks sequence which is actually kind of a runner yeah it just uh it really feels very much interested in and very much specific to the city where it takes place and i i didn't have maybe necessarily the familiarity with the upper west side to recognize it as that but it does feel of a community and looking at it now i can see oh yeah that's totally a let me get on my little high horse for a minute because please something that annoys me about new yorkers Uh (laughs) uh-huh there's a real expectation that everyone in the world should know the nuances of like every borough in new york in a way that i don't think applies to any other city i don't think it's just expected that if i say lakeview everyone in the world is like i know exactly what you're talking about in terms of what that area of chicago's like but if you're supposed to say the upper west side and everyone's just supposed to know what that's like and i'm like well i don't live in that city why would i know that that's the neighborhood it's a it's a city with main character syndrome to be sure i mean for sure and it's like oh Brooklyn. We all know what Brooklyn's like. I mean, I guess, but like, you don't know what other cities' areas are like. That's my that's my soapbox ended. Sure. <laughs> Suck it, New Yorkers. Suck it, New York. What I do think adds to the <laughs> communal feel successfully in the Upper West Side or not <laughs> is how much of an ensemble movie this is. Yeah. Even more so, I would say, than the last two Efrons we've covered, which really had like great, great ensembles. But, like, one or two great supporting characters. Like, when I think uh-huh. of Sleepless, I think of, like, Rosie O'Donnell. Or when I think of, you know, When Harry Met Sally, it's, like, Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby. Whereas I think this is, like, you have Tom and you have Meg at the top. And then you really have, like, a wide ensemble of, like, equally important characters. Mainly that they are all not very important at all. <laughs> but they all feel very lived in. Like, you have the, – they're each dating someone – there's all these lovely people that work at the bookshop with Kathleen. Yeah, three you get a little characters. bit of the um, Dave Chappelle. But all of those characters just feel so like great and lived in. And I yeah. think that that adds that communal neighborhood feel. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I, I, their relationships, something that we really see used, I think, to great effect in uh, in all the Efron films, but maybe like especially here, is just these moments where – You've got a relationship that is constantly being processed by the two individuals going and having like heart to hearts with everybody, mm-hmm. you know, them going and relying on these people. And, you know, it, Tom like going and drinking martinis on his boat with his with his dad. his aristocratic book magnate dad, whose own dad is also alive. 
it's uh that's very fun and then yeah you got these they're not that central but you have some little kids make their way in here you have the extremely bizarre jillian and maureen who are very fun (laughs) just two like real weirdos stuck in there yeah Um, there's just such a depth i think that this was a screenplay that originally had a lot of subplots for all those characters and then i'm not sure if they filmed it and trimmed it or if they just like never ended up filming some stuff but i think the movie got really slimmed down to just the joe and kathleen story interesting But part of the reason all the other characters feel so lived in is because i think on the page there was more yeah that would make sense maybe a great screenwriting lesson to just like write that level of detail know that level of detail about your characters so that you can write these interactions that feel so natural Mm -hmm. i just love all the stuff with her and the little friends like i just want to work at that bookstore so badly yeah the vibes there are extremely good it's impeccable heather burns as the like blase college student steve zahn as the I don't know. <laughs> sort of weird Steve Zahn type guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a Steve Zahn type. Gene Stapleton is the sort of like old, older lady who is friends with Kathleen's mom and is kind of like a mother figure. Oh, she's so great. I love she's everything she does. so good. Yeah. And then Greg Kinnear is so funny as- oh, I love Greg Kinnear. I'm such a huge <laughs> fan of Greg Kinnear. Should we do I... a Greg Kinnear series? Maybe. There was once upon a time where I would have been like, that would be the first person I would think of. I don't know why in high school I was like obsessed with him. It was probably some combination of Little Miss Sunshine and mm-hmm. Myster- and Mystery Man. When oh, I was like, sure. This freaking guy can do it all. I love Greg Kinnear. He's so handsome. Um yeah, he's just uh, he's he's a really great character in this. I will say the like learning about Nora Ephron and the whole uh, Carl Bernstein aspect just gave me like some lens on all the journalist characters in here that 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 appear in all of her films and yeah, this one his like his little scene with the typewriter and he just like wants to play the sound of it report as in gunshot. I just think he's he's like really wonderful and it he's again kind of like a um. He's kind of like a Walter figure from Sleepless in Seattle in that he is he's just not right for her and that's fine, you know, no hard feelings. They just go their separate way. It's a, it's a little bit he's, he's not like that character at all, but um I think he's a little bit more of a sati- I agree he's like mostly a good dude, but I think there's a little bit more satire in terms of what that type of leftist intellectual journalist. Yes. Yeah. My favorite part is when they're watching this TV interview he did, mm-hmm. and and he's like making her watch, and he's like, "Are you taping this?" And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm taping it." And during the interview, he's talking about how like the VCR is the downfall of modern society, and now all we want to do is tape things and watch TV all the time. And it's like, yes, what a what a great little pointed hypocrisy of yes, yes, yeah. And he tape that interview. He, he writes this like great, beautiful. I think honestly, a very like well written sounding article about their bookshop, but he's like sitting like reading it aloud to himself and like yes. hearing like <laughs> making sure that everybody's getting all the work so he's he's definitely a little bit like up his own ass but um but i think like walks a fun line yes he's not like a vil- he's not like a wedding singer villain like we we can't let her marry him he's evil no it's and their breakup is very similar to the sleepless breakup where they're just like yeah. we're not in love but neither of us is remotely bothered or tra- emotionally traumatized by this breakup we're just yeah <laughs> gonna be friends it doesn't seem like in any of these films we have characters like that like odious wedding singer guy you know which which is kind there's... of funny given nora efron's own like tumultuous history of like that she writes heartburn about like a horrible 
marriage falling apart. And then from then on, in all her rom-coms, she's like, only happy breakups where everyone's fine and there's no Have no you seen strife. Harper? Mm-hmm. It's, it was interesting to, like, the whole, like, literally conditions about the writing of Heartburn were in the actual, like, divorce papers. Like, Mike Nichols, oh, that the I director, didn't know. was yeah. a signatory to the Whoa. divorce papers. So, <laughs> wow. but, but it was interesting that, like, even that, it sounds like there was supposed to be some balance to him. But also maybe, like, that was very personal, and I don't think we're getting that same thing. That level of, like, personal hurt in this. Yes. The, her, her take on relationships that just aren't the right fit. Yeah. But I do think maybe this is some of the magic of Efron is that the movies are so light and everyone's like a good person. But you also get the sense that like Nora Efron has lived a life Mm, (laughs) and she'll kind of weave that in there too. And even the casualness with the like Joe Fox's family and that his grandpa and his dad are both these horrible rich people who keep having kids and like leaving women or women are leaving them or there's always something going on. And and she's kind of just like in the background, like, yeah, these are the forces that are like low key shaping Joe. And it's not a story where like he needs to break away and reject his family. Again, it's just kind of like, here's a thing that happens. Like rich people mm-hmm. are bad in these ways, but you can still kind of be good in these ways. And that's yeah. how the lot of the world goes. And even there, th- those guys are the closest to, I'd say, like stereotypes. But I would say there is even compassion in the handling of them. I mean, like his, scene, so too. With, his scene with Dabney Coleman as his dad, who... You know, truly, they 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 sit around like in the very first scene, are like, ha ha ha, another bookstore went out of business. <laughs> but it's in a way that feels, I don't know, honestly, like playful, a little like realistic in the way in which it is sort of self-referential. And yeah, I just think you see the humanity of all these characters. Like she just doesn't write anyone who is like a, a f- like a a perfunctory archetype. Like everybody mm-hmm. has that seed of you're like, yeah, it really is like that, isn't it? Yeah. I love that scene with him and his dad and the dad's like going over all of the, you know, relationships, the wives he's had. And, and Joe keeps being like, yep, that one was my nanny. That one was my nanny too. (laughs) He just keeps being like, well, how ironic. Cause now his new wife has run away with the nanny. And yeah, I, I, that scene is very weirdly like heartwarming for (laughs) you actually break down what's happening. It doesn't feel like it should be a heartwarming scene, but kind of is. Yes. Yes. I totally agree. Um, so yeah, there's really all this great stuff around the outside, around the sort of like surrounding that central romance, which as we've alluded to many times is, I think, really well done in the way Mm -hmm. they walk through it. Not, not exactly what I expected. What did you expect? Well, I'll tell you, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but I, I, uh, the thing that threw me the most is there's a moment in what I thought was near the end, when he comes to visit her when she is sick. Yeah. The bookstore has just gone under. He visits her. She's... She loves me. It's the ice cream. Yes. You brought me ice cream. That's right. Yeah. An audition See? song I've seen many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, great song. Um, yes. He comes and brings her flowers while she's sick. Oh, I forgot. So she's she's really sick and she loves me in Shop yeah. Around the Corner, right? Yeah. Same thing. That's great. Well, it just really works. And frankly, it feels like it has echoes of Meg Ryan's like distraught crying scene in yes, When Harry Met Sally. Sure. In this case, in this case, the physical gag is she's like congested all to fuck and like throws this trench coat over her pajamas, but is like in a brain fog state and like yes. literally like 
This man whom she theoretically hates shows up, but she lets him in. And while he's there, she like climbs into bed and he kind of tucks her in. Um, Just one of those, like a great little bit of like things happening in spite of themselves. There is a moment in there where he says like, don't say something you're going to regret, which I thought was him acknowledging like, I'm the guy who emailed you about this. And she has a look and I thought that was the revelation. So then it kind of pulled the rug on me. I guess if you're rewatching, you would not experience this at all, but in the next scene where she goes back to not knowing him at all, not I was like, oh, I thought, oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was the revelation that he was email guy. I think so, there is maybe a question that like she does know but doesn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way she says I wanted it to be you at the end, as you mm-hmm. quoted, implies yeah. to me like there was a part of her that's like, well, maybe it's him, but that's insane. It couldn't be him. And she's kind of living in this. Like, I don't know. I think that I think even that part is intentional, sort of. Like, if yeah. maybe during their whole latter friendship, there's a part of her that's like kind of knows, even if she yeah. won't, can't fully acknowledge it. Like in Spider Man 2, how Mary Jane doesn't yet know that Peter Parker is Spider Man, but she kind of knows exactly. because she kissed him at the end of the first movie. Exactly. Okay, I understand now. <laughs> yes, we just had to put it in Spider Man terms. Thank you, finally. Um, yeah, so the structure just wasn't exactly what I, what I expected. And it's just got some, there's like a whole chapter where she like rallies the community around the store, but then that ends up not making a difference fundamentally in the, in the financials of the store. It's just got some, it's got some interesting chapters and it's kind of fun that it's got twists inside of twists because for a relatively small, but not insignificant chunk of the movie, they're working around the first twist, which is that they have met and like each other, but she doesn't yet know that he mm-hmm. is—he is the book mogul. Yeah, her competitor. And so there's a—they—they they dance around the twist of that, and then that twist is revealed. And then there is a later twist, which they don't either of them know, and then it's revealed to him. And then there's a whole act where she doesn't know, and it ends when finally he is revealed to her, and everybody sees everybody, and they kiss in the dog yeah. in the garden, etc. Yeah. But yes, it goes through some interesting phases and uh, and has, I'd say, a lot of very fun, um, you know, what I would call bits along the way. As I mentioned, there's like, there's a hiding, uh, hiding from each other bit that I really enjoy. There's the chapter where he says, go to the mattresses, fight, 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 fight. Mm-hmm. And she, she's getting ready to do all this. And she has this like, extremely adorable, like, kung fu Yes, a little like shadow boxing. God, I love that scene. It's so cute. Maybe that's considered to be an iconic moment from this. I like lit up at that. I was like, this is adorable. I love her. Well, this is something I wanted to bring up. Sure. Because I think maybe something that gets lodged against Meg Ryan a little bit is like her characters can feel similar. Mm -hmm. Like obviously we talked about in Joe versus the Volcano how that's very much not true because she has all these character actor skills. But I think even within the three Efrons – like, in a surface-level way, I think when Harry met Sally, Sleepless, and You've Got Mail, her characters are s- surface-level similar. But mm-hmm. I actually think they feel pretty different in, like, their actions and their ethos. Like, mm-hmm. I think Sally in, in When Harry met Sally is, like, there's a little bit of a cynical edge to her. As much as she's like, I'm going to be the positive one to Harry's mm-hmm. pessimism. Like, I do think she's a little bit cynical. Yeah, she's like she's sort of guarded and defensive, I think, in the way she looks around at the world. Mm-hmm. And and part of that, I think, manifests as her trying to be extremely precise in everything she does. And that's 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 
like a Sallyism to me. And you don't see yes. that. You don't see that really with these other ones. It's like really contained. She's like a little like nerve that's like been contained in something. Mm-hmm. And then I think Annie and Sleepless in Seattle is like pretty grounded and practical, actually. Like her arc is sort of like, I am a practical person getting like sucked into romanticism. Yes. Sort of like being befuddled by that. Yes. And then I feel like Kathleen is just like this wholesome, lovable, like genuinely optimistic person like if sally's kind of falsely optimistic like kathleen just like wants to read to children and keep magic alive for them and and like i don't know she feels so distinct to me from the other two characters and even like the little cutesy shadow boxing scene like i couldn't imagine sally or annie doing that action you know what i mean that's such a kathleen like way to psych yourself up yes yeah and it's so it's it's so funny because in that moment he's basically said and and again a little bit of a men are this women are that yeah there's a little bit of an echo of all women cry at an affair to remember totally that all men just know when she mentions like he said go to the mattresses to greg kinnear and uh greg kinnear's like well yeah the godfather yeah which is so funny because <laughs> the second he said i didn't know they were going to get into that but the second he said go to the mattresses i like lit up because i'm always like i find myself often using that phrase and then having to explain it i'm like you know you you go to the mattresses you're going to war <laughs> you go to a gang war so you move into a safe house and everybody sleeps on mattresses i was just like oh thank god they're using that phrase i love it and then it then proceeded to be like that's because you, Ned, are just wow. a classic boy who loves the Godfather. <laughs> Godfather is everything. Called out by Nora Ephron. Totally called out by Nora Ephron, accurately, deservedly. But yeah, it's it's fun for him to be like, he says like, fight, 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 fight. And she's trying, she who is this ray of sunshine is trying to, in a way that doesn't clearly click naturally, put herself in the mindset of being like, I'm going to fight Godfather. Yes. Get him, kill him. It's business, not personal. And... Yeah, it's it's I agree that she is like she's probably the most sort of sunny figure. And part of that is why I think you can buy that at the end she goes through what could kind of be a personal tragedy. But she's able to look at it like this is life. Life is happening. And also I'm not going to let this like define, you know, like who I'm going to be and who I'm going to be with and those sorts of things. I agree Mm -hmm. that they are different. I think you are right that there's something about like her tone of voice, her like vocal mannerisms don't change that much. Mm -hmm. I think not in the way like they do in Joe versus a volcano where she's very obviously like I'm distinctly a different person. Right. Right. These three protagonists, these three Efron protagonists. And I think you could also kind of argue that's true as well for um for Anastasia. Anastasia and I'm tripping out. Joe versus the volcano. That her for the character of Patricia in Joe versus yeah. the volcano. Patricia, right? God, the names. The main one. The I don't main know because there's a Patricia in You've Got Mail too. Oh God, the blonde one that yes. looks most like yes. normal Meg. Ryan. The Meg. The Meg Ryan one. The Meg Ryan one. They are all sort of similar in that mannerism. I think a lot of um, have I talked about our friend Royer's? acting you might have mentioned it but please do again well just that royer is a phenomenal actor mm-hmm. this was Great a person sh- we went to school with that's right um maybe i mentioned her for some other reason I don't know, but great actor. Shout out to Royer. <laughs> Shout out to Royer. Fantastic Shakespearean. Um, going to be in a show at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival this season. Um, she's talked to me about how her acting method is not to try to like build up 
mannerisms from the ground up, but to be like, what would I do if I were, if I had lived this character's life and were in this character's circumstances? And it is a way in which, like, you are not trying to mask your own mannerisms at all. You are letting your mannerisms move into the character, which is which does not at all make your characters fundamentally similar in their like personalities and energies because that comes from the text from the actual character text that you're working with it just means that sometimes people might say oh it's very samey if they're used to you know what we would call like transformative acting like a daniel day lewis sure completely like unrecognizable from one character to the other. It's, you know, it's, whenever you see these like like so-and-so is unrecognizable in first promotional image mm-hmm. from something as if like that is the most that is the highest level of acting that you can do. I do, however, think that if we look at Joe versus the volcano, it's pretty clear that she can do that kind of thing. She can yeah. be transformative in a way where she, her vocal affectations, mannerisms, physical uh, uh, comportment, and you know, to say nothing of the hair and makeup, make her literally unrecognizable, transformed in that. So it is clear that Meg Ryan can do that kind of thing, but I am not sure, looking at her career, if, if generally speaking, Hollywood was aware of that. Mm-hmm. I think I kind of get the feeling that it decided she could kind of only do, quote unquote, the Meg Ryan thing, and she aged out of the age in which we are used to seeing people do that sort of thing. And that was kind of that. I mean, you have researched her career more than I have, for sure. Yeah, I definitely want to get into all of that. I think maybe... You want to come back to that at the end? Yeah, maybe let's circle back at that at the end, just because I do think there's quite a lot to get into. But one thing I I wanted to... (laughs) to, No, 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 that's what we're here for. But it was a good transition to something I wanted to cite, Mm -hmm. which is actually an article from 2019 that, again, I'll talk about more that's like discussing her career and sort of like what happened. But they within this article just asked her about sort of like what it's like to be charming on screen and how she was able to give these like very charming rom-com performances. And I think this ties in to- I've only called her charming like a hundred times <laughs> in the past. Like don't episodes. think you're alone in doing that. But I, I think this so. totally ties in to what you're talking about with Royer mm-hmm. um, and Royer's acting process. And what Meg says about herself is I never thought about it. Like I'm going to turn the charm on early on. I didn't have a lot of acting technique. What I thought about was trying to tell the truth. The camera is a truth machine and it knows everything you're thinking. So you don't have to pretend anything. You just have to make it true somewhere inside. And I feel like that last line, like make it true somewhere inside. Hmm. That is just like sums up what I have been inarticulately trying to like praise about all these performances. Like Mm. the scene in Sleepless in Seattle where she's peeling the apple and like her, her eyes are welling up and you just know exactly what's happening inside her. You know what I mean? Like, you, there's no dialogue there that's informing us this is what's happening. But you just fully understand the entire, like, arc and he's going on there. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of that in what I think is the most, like, bittersweet part of You've Got Mail is all the stuff with the store and the store closing down and how yeah. the store is her mom's store that she's carried on. And this weird, like, really, like, tragic reality she's living in where – it's both like wonderful that she can carry on the store as her mom's legacy, and also it feels like that's slightly like a burden for her to do that. Like there's yeah. a line when she meets up with Joe when they're ha- when it's she thinks she's going to have the blind date, and 
he pretty rudely, because <laughs> he doesn't want to reveal who he really is. So he just goes there as Joe and like pretends like he's not the date and is kind of just mean to her. Great Tom Hanks asshole scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, good scene. But she says something about she's like defending herself. And she's like, people might not remember me, but they'll remember my mom and they think she was great. And it's like so heartbreaking that even in her like defending her life, her life is just like her mom only. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or And then the scene where she's um, hanging up the Christmas ornaments and like talking about the Joni Mitchell song. And I don't know. She's so like frank and honest about like, oh, this time of year, like I just miss my mom so much. And like, this is how sad I am. Mm-hmm. Or when the store closes and she's like, it's like a part of me has died and it will never be okay again. And she just says that. And the movie, like, never is not, like... And then here's exactly how she got it. The movie's kind of like, yeah, that's probably true. Like, she, there's probably a part of her that will never get over this, just as there's a part of her that will be, like, freed by this and will go on to do incredible things. And sort of both things are true at once. Yeah. Yeah. Just, like... I th- I feel like we've been coming back to this, like, time and again through the through the Efron movies. But it's like, they contain the darkness that is part of life. They just don't get bogged down. They, they they somehow do not feel bogged down, even though they are not shying away from those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is such an interesting part of this particular character, the way in which it's like, yeah, the thing that is sort of like the sweetest and the dearest is also in a way like really sort of like this weight that she's carrying mm-hmm. around. And this was kind of the thing. I didn't want to move on just because I wanted to say a little more about the thing that I think I love most about this movie is mm-hmm. how this movie like treats words and language. Mm-hmm. Like I think some of the dialogue in this movie is just beautiful. <laughs> and I could just, that's why I could watch it two days in a row. Cause it's just yeah. like beautiful dialogue. And I think that really comes through here because so much of it is just the two characters reading these long, like essentially letters they've written. Mm-hmm. Like, I think what's interesting about this movie is that, On the one hand, it's like, oh, how funny that it's this really dated, like, internet moment of AOL and the chat rooms and, like, all these things that feel so foreign to us now. On the other hand, what is more, like, literally timeless than just two people writing long-distance letters to each other? You know, that's, like, something human beings have been doing since we created the ability to write. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this movie is just, I think, about the difference between how you act in person when you're sort of just off the cuff having to sum up your how you feel, what we're doing right now, me stumbling through this sentence versus what I do as a writer. Like I have all the time in the world to write a column and put my thoughts exactly how I want them to be and communicate like that. And I think that's such an interesting thing to explore, like how really what the internet and like texting, all this stuff did, it just made us write more than I think people had been doing in the early nineties. Like Mm -hmm. I think probably you were much more likely to call up your friend on the phone and chat. And then once you had email, you're probably a lot more likely to just like, write emails back and forth or text back and forth. Like you're just dealing with the written word a lot more. Yeah. And I think this movie is very prescient about the ways in which Joe and Kelly and Kathleen communicate spoken, whatever, mm-hmm. versus in writing and like the differences that exist there. And I love, I just love that like exploration of that. Yeah. And as we sort of mentioned earlier, that they're both really like sort of preoccupied and bothered by parts of the way they are in person to person conversations, specifically with him saying, I can totally bust out these, you know, witty repartees, but I I always feel like I'm not expressing who I want to be when I do that. And she's like, I get all tongue-tied and I'm not expressing how I want to be. And yet, as they meet each other through written language, 
they are totally able to express how they how they want to be. And she has this she talks about like when, you know, through the internet, through email, you always end up talking more about nothing than about something. But all of this nothing has meant more to me than a whole load of somethings or, th- See, or someone that's the like thing. That. Like that's the kind of lines where I'm like, oh, I could listen to this. Yeah. Like the way Efron puts that is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's like poetry or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you like there is an aspect of this romance that I think is very obvious about like in person, they don't get along because of these business circumstances, but online they do get along because of anonymity. But I think you're making a very interesting point that I had not realized before, which is like they are able to express themselves as they want to be mm-hmm. when they are writing to each other. And and they there is this sort of like sense that like that is a that is a valid true self. And they're so much more vulnerable, I think, when they have the space to think about how they want to say things or Mm -hmm. even the scene where tom hanks is sitting down to apologize for not going to the date like as the online persona for not going to the date yeah oh that's such a sweet letter first he's like i'm gonna do it as a joke and then he does it really sincerely and he even does this interesting thing where he's like i'm sorry for not being there deletes it and says i'm sorry for what happened yes he's not like lying to her Mm because he was there Mm mm-hmm but he's yes. like not quite ready to admit that. So he's like, I'm sorry for what happened. Honestly, everything you said to that jerky guy was deserved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's like such an honesty there. That's a great, that's a great letter. I thought maybe that would be the, like the last letter. It is for, a, they take, it seems like they go, there's a quiet period after that. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a great, that's a great little, little scene. And yeah, of course you have like, all of these things are realized as narration by these two great, actors so you just get to hear them reading outlines that you know they're good at doing uh off the cuff naturalistic deliveries but you also get these sort of scripted monologues from them Mm -hmm. you know like where he's like i love i love new york in the fall it makes me think of school supplies i want to give you a bouquet of sharpened pencils Mm -hmm. just things that it just feels like only nora efron could write yeah these little specific touches of specificity it also makes me think of In Pride and Prejudice, which is a novel that they cite a lot in the mm-hmm. movie. In that novel, Darcy like proposes to Elizabeth and it goes terribly and they're mm-hmm. like, we hate each other. And what does he do? He sits down and writes like a beautiful, long, eloquent letter explaining everything. He's like, I meant to say this. 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 And then that's kind of what makes her fall in love with him. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like some of the stuff that the Efrons add from the Shop Around the Corner original movie is like pulling more from Pride and Prejudice of like this rich mm-hmm. guy and this girl and sort of like the 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 added conflicts that come from that and then yeah. how writing can cause them to express themselves differently. Yeah, maybe in a less explicit way, but this movie does feel like it is in conversation with the sort of cultural text of Pride and Prejudice in a similar way to how Sleepless in Seattle is in conversation mm. with an affair group member. Mm-hmm. There's my theory. It's also a book that Nora Ephron really was a huge fan of in real life. She said it was one of her... The movie, the documentary ends with her saying a list of things I will miss when I'm gone. And oh she God. she did die of leukemia in 2012 yeah. and in a heartbreaking way. And uh, yeah, that's it's a tearjerker right at the end. I t- texted my cousin about it. She says, we got you with a with a, a cheap <laughs> cry at the end. I said, not cheap, earned, earned yeah. cry. So, Very earned. Yeah. I, I do want to acknowledge that there – I think that there's a part of this movie – I think not all of the third act of this movie works for me. I think some people, as much as people love this movie, I think some people do find the Hanks character very off-putting. Mm-hmm. For me, I think where that comes in 
is largely in the third act during the part where he is becoming friends with her while also still messaging her, which I think could be a very sweet concept if played correctly, but it ends up getting played as like him sort of like pitting her against the online guy and being like, you should ask him if he's married. And then on the, as the online guy is kind of like, that was rude. You shouldn't have asked me that I was married. And like, it, it's supposed to be like cutesy and like a thawing of their relationship. And I mm-hmm. do think they get the balance a little bit wrong there. I see what you're saying. And I do, there, there was something about it where by the end of the movie, it was like slightly less than the high I had felt in the first act as I was getting to know yeah. the movie where I was like, what? Somehow I was just like, I was loving, loving, loving this. And now I'm just really enjoying myself. And it might have to do with that. It does, as I mentioned earlier, it does feel very sort of classical. It does feel like actually a device. I mean, these things go on in, I think, some of the Shakespeare comedies I mentioned, probably others of them, where it's like one of the people in a relationship is sort of like continues to be duped for what feels like an uncomfortably long time until it's like, Mm -hmm. but we're waiting for the right moment to reveal it. That is a little bit weird here. And I think, honestly, the that line, I so wanted it to be you does so much work in retroactively selling that third act because without that it would be like it'd just be her being overwhelmed being like you just fucking lied to me for so long but it's like they get you a lot of the way back in that one moment of her being like just saying like this is what i wanted whether or not you feel you can take that at face value but um but i do agree there is some weirdness around that I think it also really helps to have Tom Hanks in that role, who yes. is both so lovable and, again, as we keep talking about, has the meta comfort of like, yeah, this is a person who's supposed to be with Meg Ryan. We've seen this on screen. This uh-huh. is what it's supposed to be. And he has some like, just like wonderful line deliveries. That line where he goes over to visit her, or the scene where he goes over to visit her when she's sick mm-hmm. and in her brain fog state, she's like, why are you here again? And he goes, I wanted to be your friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what a sweet, just like, that's a moment where I feel like he's starting to take his sort of online vulnerability into the real world. And the other line, this might be my favorite F online just of all time, mm-hmm. is right before she's going off to meet the her online boyfriend. Um, and he's sort of saying, if we had just met you know, and we hadn't been Fox Books and Shop Around the Corner. Yeah. You know, and he's like, what if I had just like asked you out for coffee or a movie or dinner for as long as we both shall live? And it is like the sweetest thing I've ever heard. And his delivery of it is so perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's that scene, that whole sequence, I think works maybe better than it should because of that rapport between them and because of some great lines like that i think it is strange plot wise but uh but you've just got this sweetness and as as you say like the uh the the baggage of it the mm, can i work in semiotics here uh yeah, please do. i don't know if Shout i can if sam. i to dr sam summers uh, i don't know if i can get it right um but the it's like the semiotics of seeing meg ryan and uh, oh, I hope he doesn't listen to this. He's going to be like, "No, you've got it all wrong." <laughs> um, but seeing them together, yeah, you just you 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 sort of trust it. Um, yeah. Can I hit you with one more quote from the um, "Everything Please. Is Copy" documentary? It was from someone interviewing uh, Nora Ephron, like in front of the premiere of the film, and being like, mm-hmm. "Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, why does it? Why did? Why does he keep working? Why do you keep doing it?" She goes, two great brains 
and the fact that they look like they're from the same food group. Which, wow. which is just so transcendently brilliant in a way that I can't even say like what that means. No, but just you just feels, immediately understand. It just feels right. You're like, you're like, okay, Nora, I guess you're right. Yeah, they look like they're from the same food group. Wow, that's so good. Yeah. Um, this was the last movie that Nora Ephron uh, directed Meg Ryan in, but she actually did write the script. For a movie I haven't seen called Hanging Up, mm-hmm. which is – it's also on my to-watch Meg Ryan list, but it's Meg Ryan, Lisa Kudrow, and Diane Keaton are like three sisters, mm-hmm. and Diane Keaton directed it. And, and Nora Keaton Ephron and, and Yeah. I think oh. it was her directorial debut, and um, Nora and Delia Ephron wrote it. So I feel like that's one I want to catch up on and see what that kind of – I don't think it got great reviews. No, it So didn't. I don't know, but um, – I don't know. The trailer looks really cute. Just like these three sisters and yeah, I don't know. You should, uh, if you watch that, you should check out the documentary because it is an interesting look at, it is very much Delia's take on the Efron sisters, but it is very interesting to have it filtered through Nora's sort of like screenplay adaptation in a way that did, I think, result in some sort of tension between them that was ultimately Mm -hmm. you know fortunately resolved before nora passed away but i'm pretty curious about that film as well yeah and hit us with the name of the documentary again everything is copy everything is copy i I believe that was sort of like the phrase that efron's parents kind of raised the kids with right because they were screenwriters yes that's right um and, and and it gets into some of the complexities of that but this idea that uh that Whatever happens to you in your life is something that can be used in your writing, um, which is clearly an idea that has come up time and again as we've discussed three Nora Ephron movies. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's fun that, yeah, we really have done, we really have gone deep on Nora Ephron and to a bit Tom Hanks while we've been yeah. trying to go deep on Meg Ryan. But, um, but yes, it's, she brings these specific, specific touches that are clearly from her own life uh, into these films to great effect. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to definitely make some time to talk about like what happened to Meg Ryan, which I think is a question a lot of people have. But is there anything that we didn't touch on in You've Got Mail that that we want to hit up? I love the <laughs> the scene where where Kathleen and the her bookshop friends are s- sort of trying to figure out why her date didn't show. And they're mm-hmm. like, maybe he got hit on the subway. Maybe he's this. And then they find out that the rooftop killer has been captured. And they immediately jump to, well, your date was the rooftop killer. It's so killed. good that you didn't go, that he got captured before you went to go meet him up. Yeah. Uh, always, I, I mean, I laughed equally hard the two times I watched this movie though this week. Yeah. Um, I wanted to shout out that uh, I think this is a very well edited film. There's some really funny, mm. there's some really good comic cuts in here. Um, I mean, I think generally speaking, the idea is good editing is editing that you don't notice, which I generally didn't. But there are a few moments where I was like, damn, that was a funny, funny edit right there. Um, Shout out to Richard Marks, the editor of You've Got Mail. Go, Richard. Keep uh, keep on keeping on with the editing. <laughs> email right. us, com if you want to discuss um, the editing in your movie. The other thought that it that is really maybe, maybe neither here nor there, particularly with regard to like the specifics of this film or to Meg Ryan's career. But I just love thinking about, I consider independent bookstores to be like one of the great success stories of the 21st century, because I tend to get kind of like down in the dumps about like every time 
There was a there was a local diner that closed at the beginning of the pandemic that I am literally still I feel like I think about weekly about how gutted <laughs> I am that it that it is gone. And I just am like these places that have decades of history and that kind of personality that you just can't fake are all going to go away one by one and be replaced by Dunkin' Donuts. And I was really just super depressed about it one day. And my, my friend Sammy Zysel was like, well, think about like independent bookstores. They were from a – just a like a business and numbers perspective like on the edge. And I think it's quite clear like this movie's 25 years old and was clearly foretelling – in a way that would have been culturally familiar to everyone in its audience, the idea that book megastores were going to just eat up and destroy the last of the independent bookstores, and they haven't gone away because people like those mm-hmm. experiences. So this movie, and maybe this is one of the reasons why I think we can forgive Tom Hanks uh, in the end of this film, or like can 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 see him not as like the great Satan of the story, because... I think we actually have seen that the 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 shop around the corners of the world, many of them have gone under, sadly, but many of them are thriving because people have said, you know, this uh, this is a this is a model that has value, and that I cling to that thought sometimes in the many arenas in life in which you see small, independent, unique being paved over by large, multinational, standardized. Well, also, many of them are now, like, sprouting up in response to Amazon's success, having shut basically shut down Barnes & Noble and Borders. Mm-hmm. And now there's also – there's even an interesting meta sense to You've Got Mail, like, nostalgia for the Borders and the Barnes & <laughs> Absolutely. Nobles. Yes. I think m- many people of our generation who spent a lot of good time, like, having a lot of good memories in Borders would say, oh, yeah, for Harry a Potter Borders bookstore releases. to come back. Mm-hmm. I'd take anything that, like, actually had a physical location and wasn't Amazon.com. So – Yes, and maybe 60 years hence, when the uh, March of Progress has invented something more odious than Amazon, we'll be like, remember when you used to scroll through Amazon and find yeah. books to read? I miss <laughs> Instead that. of ordering it through my brain chip and it <laughs> gets downloaded to my yes, cerebral cortex. costs me some sort of life energy, whatever. I also feel like I need to mention that after Angels in America, this is our second film to mention Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. That's right. And I feel like we should keep track of if that is becomes a weird theme <laughs> through roll calling is just movies that mention the Rosenbergs. They're interesting people, you know. It's that's fertile ground. Yeah, truly. Um so, okay, well please, yeah. Tell us talk talk to us about Meg Ryan's career. Yes. So let's dig into the what happened to Meg Ryan of it all, which I think Maybe to me, before I started researching this, felt like a little bit of an abstract question. Like, yeah, Hollywood kind of tends to toss aside women when they get into their 40s and beyond. Mm -hmm. And she must have been prey to that. I think that was some of it. But I also think there are very, like, specific things that happened with her career that feel – she becomes representative of, I think, like, a lot of really toxic trends in Hollywood at the time and Hmm. probably – still to today yeah um but obviously even if we just compare it to tom hanks right like he goes on to we've already said he's gotten like four or five oscar nominations by this <laughs> point and he will do you know catch me if you can and cast away and whatever the da vinci code franchise and you know as recently as beautiful day in the neighborhood gets him another oscar nomination like he's gone on to have this wildly successful career and i would say her career kind of like pretty much peaks with you've got mail mm-hmm. she goes on to make some a couple more movies i think there's like 11 more movies after this but they really kind of start trickling out uh she hasn't made a new project since 2015 she does do things like kate and leopold which i had mentioned was sort of like my intro to her yeah. i actually think one of her lesser rom-com performances like she, 
I think her heart feels a little bit less in in the genre at that point by 2001. Right. Does a couple other random things here and there, but pretty much like just disappears. And I would say that there are two maybe big events that sort of caused this to happen more than anything else, which Mm -hmm. I think this is the kind of thing that like if you lived through this celebrity history, I think just feels like common knowledge to you. But maybe if you're like us a little bit young to have lived through it exactly or to be paying attention to it, it is like, oh, wow, I can't believe all that happened. Yeah. So one thing we've talked about is that she was married to Dennis Quaid and they had this very, you know, picture perfect. She's America's sweetheart. He's this wholesome actor, like put him on the People magazine covers, like picture perfect couple. They have their son, Jack. I think they do, you know, just a lot of talking about how lovely their home life is. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that kind of causes people to turn against her is that she's making this movie that comes out in 2001 called Proof of Life, where she co-stars with Russell Crowe. And so around that time, sort of there's all these paparazzi photos that are coming out of her and Russell Crowe just seeming like pretty cozy. Then she and Dennis split and then they officially divorce and she dates Russell for a while. Uh So the narrative in the media becomes... Oh, I can only imagine. Right. So the narrative becomes that Meg, you know, is a horrible scarlet woman who ruined her marriage with Russell and cheated... Or sorry, ruined her marriage with Dennis and cheated on him with Russell. Uh Uh-huh. We still love Dennis Quaid. We still love Russell Crowe. Yes. Surprise, surprise, neither of them were... um, tarnished by this it becomes a big thing about meg and she is very she's kind of she ends up talking about this like later years later she very purposely doesn't discuss it at the time and she said she didn't discuss it because i mean this was like a huge tabloid thing like i Mm -hmm. it was not like oh this was a minor thing like i think this was a really big here's three mega mega famous people having a really (laughs) dramatic you know splitting up a marriage situation it's it's hard for me to think of it as dramatic but i can try to put myself in the shoes of a tabloid reader of just the way yeah the way that people would discuss this in their in early 2000s yeah and she kind of knew that anything she added to the situation was not actually going to add nuance to it and i think her main priority was trying to keep things as good for her son as possible. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I don't think she wanted to come out and say, actually, here's what happened because that was just going to make the situation worse. She has later said that like, basically her marriage just wasn't good for years. She said for like five years, she was just like, it wasn't working out. Like they were not kind of like going to events together. They might've still legally been married, but it hadn't really felt like an active relationship. And that uh, basically Dennis had been cheating on her before she ever got together with Russell. But she at the time does not want to come out and say, oh, actually, you know, my son's father, here's all the problems with him. She's yeah. kind of like, I think, pretty dignified in this. Mm-hmm. I also, man, Ned, digging into this period in uh, pop culture, let me tell you, there's a People magazine story that comes out in July of 2000 that's like breaking the news of the Meg and Dennis split. This, to me, seems like something that was put out by Dennis Quaid's PR team. All the people Mm. quoted in it are like his ex-wife that he's friendly with and his brother. Those are the main sources. This whole story, I mean, this is a long like like a long story. It's like pages and pages of this was devastating for Dennis. Like you know, this poor man, his marriage was ruined. He's devastated. Da, 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 da. You're reading for paragraphs, paragraphs, paragraphs. Then you get to this section where it's talking about, they're like, but maybe Dennis isn't perfect either. Like a source says that on, uh, that several women hired as extras complained that he was quote, pawing at them. 
Quote, they said he was very aggressive, touching them and grabbing their butts, said a 21-year-old broadcast journalism major who played a cheerleader in the film, and how he, like, pulled her into a room and kissed her, and she was really uncomfortable with that. These are kind of things that this article is just, like, tossing off as asides in one paragraph, <sighs> then goes to, some who knew Quaid find such stories hard to believe, and then quotes from his ex-wife and his brother, like, well, he's flirty, but he would never do that. And so, like, reading this, I was like, (laughs) like, this is everything that's wrong with Hollywood in a nutshell. Like, a whole article about sympathetic Dennis. Quick aside, like, maybe he's not perfect, but probably we don't need to worry about that. Anyway, back to all the bad things that Meg did in this. So that was um, frustrating to read. Yeah, the early thousands, I feel like the narrative, the public narrative of the time was that we lived in this, like, awesome feminist progressive time. And looking back, you're like... Jesus Christ, this was the yeah. most, like, odious, like, dark ages, in a way that really was, I do not want to toss out the, the, the G word, the gaslight word, but in, in a way that was really, like, like toxic, toxic, and just buried under this, like, narrative of, like, everything's fine, and if you complain, you're a feminazi, and, yes. and deranged. And yes. maybe someday we will be looking back at the same time and be saying the same thing. Like, we thought yeah. we lived in a very progressive time, and we really yeah. fucking didn't. I do think that was a particularly bad era, though. Yeah, and so obviously that's one, you know, I think this would be a scandal for a lot of celebrities. Because she is America's sweetheart with this perfect celebrity uh-huh. relationship, that is also a huge, just like there's a huge backlash to it. I still think in all, like, she does this really interesting interview with Oprah in like 2006 where she's talking about it god oprah is such a good interviewer she's like talking to her about it and then oprah just quietly is like do you think you took a public bu- a public bullet for something that wasn't really your fault like kind of saying like was this actually Dennis's fault mm-hmm. and meg is just like just kind of like shakes her head yes and she's like yep yep i think that's what happened but I, she didn't want to make that the story because she didn't think that would be helpful for their son and she actually speaks really highly of like russell for not coming out and like trying to whatever, quote unquote, correct the narrative and just kind of like being very chill about all of that too. So the story of this movie, you know, obviously there's the cycle of them cheating. Then the movie comes out. The movie does not do well. The movie's totally, you know, there's no story about the movie other than the story of them dating or whatever. Um, So that's one sort of chink in the armor. I've already forgotten what you said the movie was called. (laughs) Yeah. It's called Proof of Life. It's like a hostage, hostage action thriller. Okay. Uh, they, I don't think they did any press for it. Kind of similar to the Ben Affleck, Anna Darmus movie that came out recently. Yeah. Where they had been dating when they the made water. it. And I don't think any, Dark they water. didn't do any press for that. Yeah. Because, anyway. Okay, so that was one aspect of early 2000s culture that's bad. The second aspect of early 2000s culture that's bad is that she stars in this movie, an erotic thriller called In the Cut that comes out in 2003. This is directed by uh, Jane Campion, who just won the Best Director Oscar this year mm-hmm. for Power of the Dog. Uh, so this was an earlier film for her. This is like an erotic thriller. I had never seen this movie. I watched it last night, and I'm so glad I did because I thought it was great. Like, I really oh, would recommend this movie as a very, very different uh, Meg performance, a very intentionally unnerving movie. Uh-huh. Uh, it stars Mark Ruffalo as a detective who is kind of interviewing her about these grisly murders that are happening, and she's kind of getting roped into this story. Um, I think it's like a super smart, like frankly, very ahead of its time, like feminist look at 
the way that like dating and sexuality are so tied up in like inherent dangers for women. Mm hmm. Uh, sort of like every man in her life, it's like, is he trying to date me or is he trying to murder me? And mm-hmm. I think the movie is very smart about that. So from this, I, I think nowadays the opinion that In the Cut is a good movie is it's been reclaimed. At the time, this movie came out and the response was like vicious. Not like, oh, we just don't like this movie. Basically like, Meg Ryan, you are the devil for doing this movie. There's a lot of sex and a lot of nudity. I think well done. Like I think I don't think the movie is exploitative. I think it uses those really effectively. But at the time, it was like, you are America's sweetheart. You are a rom-com queen. Also, you are 40. You're making us look at your naked body. We are disgusted and we hate everything about this. And all of the press and all of the red carpet was like, why did you want to do nudity? Why would you be naked in this movie? Like, just this like massive toxic backlash against this movie for existing and against Meg Ryan, like going against her whatever cultural semiotic persona yeah and she even says again from that 2019 uh, new york times interview that i quoted earlier that she herself says that i know that when i did in the cut the reaction was vicious and she said at the time i feel like that might have been the last movie i did since then i've had publicists say to me you should have prepared your audience for doing something different in the cut was a sexual thing and sex throws people i'd never presented myself like that before so it was different from my quote assigned archetype this is herself talking about her own she should have put out a psa i yeah. need to prepare yeah. she should have done a a, a kind of sexy movie first mm-hmm. jesus god uh, So she herself, again, says, in the cut felt like a real turning point. When you have a moniker, America's Sweetheart, it doesn't allow for the full expression of a person. But that's what movie stardom is. There's a blankness required. Wow. So she herself is very aware of, like, this is my archetype. This is, I mean, maybe only sort of aware of this in in retrospect, but becomes aware that the public is reacting to her not as an actor, but, like, Mm -hmm. as this persona they adore. And if you step outside of this persona, we adore we're just like shunning you for it. Yeah. So it was just like not a good time to be Meg Ryan, I think, or in the early 2000s. And I think probably there are more recent examples of this. Like I think Anne Hathaway is a person who got a lot of backlash for a while and kind of stepped away and then came back. Even Jennifer Lawrence, maybe to a lesser extent, got that, stepped away and came back. Mm -hmm. And the difference with Meg Ryan is like, she just didn't come back. Like she stepped away. She would do projects occasionally but i think ultimately she just made the choice that like living through that was not how she wanted to be spending her time Mm -hmm. Uh, she phrased it as i think the feeling with hollywood was mutual i felt done when they felt done probably Hmm. so i mean she also talks about how yeah probably like in her 40s she was not getting offered the same role she was in her 20s and 30s but she it also sounds like she really just like really loves being a mom So she really, like, just decided to prioritize that. She has her son, Jack, with Dennis Quaid. And then she actually adopts a daughter named Daisy, just on her own. The most um, optimistic kind of flower. Yeah. Wow. I hadn't even thought about how that was (laughs) from this movie. Yeah, maybe. uh... Her favorite flower. Um, So she adopts Daisy in 2006. So, like, you know, it's, like, raising kids. And I think it's, like, really happy and fulfilled doing that and kind of just makes the choice to step away she does some other movies like where did i put this she had done like i said kate and leopold she in 2004 tries to play like a tough boxing manager in this movie called against the ropes she's in this adam brody indie movie called in the land of women that i have never seen but i think people really like um her last kind of like big commercial project was the 2008 remake of the women which like did fine financially but was also a critical flop Hmm. 
And the sense I get is that at some point Meg was like, it's just not worth it to do this anymore. Like, I basically just want to retire. This is so, thank you for shedding this much more specific light on kind of how things broke for her in the last 20 plus years. Uh, It's a little bit, it's just more specific and I think aggravating, but also I do have to remind myself, like, despite this being the narrative, sometimes leaving the public eye is not a loss for actors, Mm -hmm. particularly if they have had enough success that they are basically going to be like financially set. Yes. Sometimes it's like, maybe this is the best thing for everybody. And I, you know, I just really wish her well. Yeah. And I think um, that when you work so much from a young age, Mm -hmm. like she was really kind of working throughout all of her 20s, gets when Harry met Sally in her late 20s. And then it's just like, you know, a huge rush. But you think at some point you're just like ready to step aside. Like I think even, I think there was a while where everyone was like, where did Joseph Gordon-Levitt go like he seemed to go away it's like yeah because he's been working since he was 14 and he wanted to be a person for like four years and now he's back and making movies like everyone chill out um but i think the meg thing you know i don't know she's interesting she's like an interesting i feel like sometimes we talk about people's like celebrity personas Mm -hmm. she just doesn't she's a very like ambivalence to fame Mm mm-hmm yeah. Um, but I think she's she's very, like, smart about being, like, no one wants to hear movie stars complain about how hard it is to be famous. So I won't quite talk about that, but also, like, it is very hard and I don't like it. And it's kind of unfortunate that acting, you know, in order to act in the way she does, this whole fame, you, you know, side. You have to be a public figure in a way that is exactly. actually not, shouldn't be logically directly connected to the work. Yes, yeah. exactly. And she just talks about being burnt out and, like, just wanting to have her own life like we said i also want to bring up something else i think she really embodies for me Mm -hmm. is the knife's edge not to use a pun but that celebrities walk in terms of plastic surgery Hmm. where if they get plastic surgery that is um not noticeable so that it just looks like they're staying young we praise them. We are like, J-Lo, flawless queen, we love you, like, mm-hmm. ageless. Paul Rudd, like, the man does not age, amazing, whatever. Jennifer <laughs> Aniston, looking fly. If they get plastic surgery that's noticeable, like, if you look at any interview with Meg Ryan and the YouTube comments under any interview, guaranteed one of the top five or a couple of the top five are like, what did she do to her face? She looks horrible. She ruined herself, da 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 Like, this just becomes this real narrative that stuck with her, too. Like, you got plastic surgery in a way we did not like, and we will shun you for that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that is, I mean, talk about something that there's, you know, to some extent, how I think most celebrities probably get plastic surgery. How good it comes out is <laughs> out of your control. Like, yes. other than researching whatever doctors, you know, are going to be the best. But that becomes this which thing where- you, surely they all do. Right. And maybe it's just the era in which you get it. I don't know. I think that becomes a big part of the narrative around her as well. Fascinating. Um, like, what's interesting to me, she's like three years older than Sandra Bullock. Huh. You know, like, Meg Ryan's 60 currently. Sandra Bullock's 57. I'm sure Sandra Bullock has had plastic surgery. Yeah. But I think Sandra Bullock, the narrative is like, you're looking amazing. We love you. You can still play rom-com characters that vaguely feel like they could be in their late 30s or early 40s. (laughs) So you are still allowed to be our queen who we love. Meg Ryan, you did not age in the way that we like. So we are shutting you out. And we will comment on this under every video about you. Yeah. Yeah. And with with, I feel like the, the sort of like main public idea being like, 
if you get bad public surgery, we say that you had public surgery. If you get good public surgery, plastic as you surgery, yeah. plastic plastic surgery. What, what did I say? Public surgery. <laughs> you did. I don't know what that would mean. Um, <laughs> but yes, people are sort of in denial. People are like, as you say, they're like Paul Rudd. How does he stay so young? Mystery. George Clooney. How does he look so good? Well, everyone's getting plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. Like, truly, that's fine. If that's what people want to do, go for it. It just feels very unfair to have the standard of yeah. we will shun certain people for it and embrace other people for sure it. I think is. that puts celebrities in a weird place. But there is like a – I'm ending us on a slightly happier note here. Great. Kind of. Um, she does in 2015. Her last project is actually a movie that she directs. It's called Ithaca. I also watched this last night because I was really curious about it. Um, it does feature in a very, very small, like essentially cameo, um, but it features Tom Hanks. It is oh. uh, a it is a World War II era story, but sort of looking at the home front. It's this like 14-year-old boy is the main character. Meg Ryan plays his mom. Tom Hanks is like appears as like the ghostly remembrance of the dad that uh-huh. died a couple of years ago. Oh, that's cute. So he's not in it much, um, but Meg Ryan tells a very sweet story about how he like flew out and did like a day on set and at the end was like... I feel like we all really, you know, got the crew together and was like, we all really bonded over these 10 hours. And I just wanted to come out and like do something nice for my friend Meg. And like, she's doing an amazing job. Mm-hmm. And um, I just Googled it. I, he's he's the picture on the YouTube trailer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think him being in it. I think Meg herself being in it. These were both, um, you know, ways to sell the movie. Actually, her son Jack is in it as her son in the movie. He's kind of the one that's off to war writing letters, I think. Ithaca is a movie that I actually really liked on paper. Like, I really like the idea and the themes. I don't think it really works in execution, mm-hmm. which is a bummer. Um, but, like, she, even her in the way she talks about it, it's like, yeah, it's kind of like a small, quiet family drama. Obviously, it was her first time directing. I think that there are, like, images and ideas of it that will stay with me. It's about this boy that's, like... 14-year-old boy who works in a te- gets a job at a telegram office and then just because of the time like some of his job is just delivering telegrams to people telling them that their sons died in the war and it's this like real like stark like coming of age story for him that is it feels like a it's based on a movie from the 40s and a novel from the 40s and it feels like a movie like made in the 40s huh. it doesn't feel like a contemporary movie interesting um some of the performances are good i think jack quaid's good in it uh, Hamish Linklater is in it. He's good. Sam Shepard's in it when he's good. Didn't love it. I don't think it's like a terrible movie. If people are curious about checking it out. But it seemed like Meg really liked directing. And around when this movie was coming out, she was talking about trying to direct other stuff, trying to write other stuff. And actually, literally last month, Netflix announced that she was going to direct a movie for them, a romantic comedy based on a novel called A Lady's Guide to Selling Out. Huh, cool. So, theoretically, there's a Meg Ryan-directed rom-com on the horizon for us to look out for. Stay tuned. That's exciting. Yeah. I think it's exciting, too. She talked about wanting to write a romantic comedy, too. So I don't know if um, that will happen at some point. But I feel like this could be a really cool, like, comeback for her to be focused on directing. It seems like she really enjoys doing that. Like, it does seem like she's kind of done with acting at this point. (laughs) But I feel like that's like exciting, and I really hope that that all pans out. I will say too, not <laughs> not to be like she lives on through her children. <laughs> she's alive as a, I mean, sixty is not old. Like she's alive as a thriving sixty-year-old woman. But yes. her son Jack Quaid was in this really great rom-com called Plus One 
that I think came out in like 2018 or 2019. Like just a really great modern sort of indie rom-com. Cool. And I think one of the things that's really cool about that movie actually is like seeing a little bit of that Meg Ryan like spirit live on in someone who like looks a lot like her, like her son in many ways looks like her. That's a cute little narrative to put on it. I think that's a sweet addition and I hope she wouldn't be, but she seems to really, you know, like talking about being a mom. So I don't want (laughs) to reduce her to that, but I think it's sweet that her, her son carries on her legacy in that way. And I'm looking forward to seeing this lady's guide to selling out. Yeah. Whenever that may come out. Cool. And that's it for dear old Meg, I think. We really just had to cram in wow. many years of her career of her career there at the end. But yeah, I think she just like stands in she stands in for like a a generation, a time. Like she feels very tied to a specific era and yeah, I guess, subgenre of pop culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More so than maybe anyone else we've covered on the podcast so far. Indeed. Indeed. But it was cool to yeah, be able to like tie some of the threads through those. I think we can see a lot of uh we can see why that why this very specific feeling was built up around her in these movies mm-hmm. that we watched. And I think, I mean, truly, like, who better to direct a rom-com? Like, the amount of times we've just praised some little physical bit of business she done, she's done or something that's so funny and humane. Yeah. Like, if she can kind of bring that to a romantic comedy, like, I think she's such a natural fit for directing that. Yeah. And that's really exciting. I hope she can. I look forward to it. Me too. Me too. We'll keep you updated if we hear more. Yeah. About the release date. So that's a wrap on Meg Ryan. Thank you, Meg. Next. Thank you, Meg. We love you. We we are so excited to... Maybe we'll cover her um, Netflix rom-com when it comes out. Yeah. Do a little director sort So next week is a very exciting time for us because Roll Calling is turning one years old. One, baby. <laughs> we made it a whole We're year. One. We We survived. Um, <laughs> and us. we are going to do... We're going to do a little celebratory episode. It's going to be, we're keeping it a surprise, mainly because we, it's going to be a surprise to us too. (laughs) (laughs) We're still in the process of figuring something out, but we are very much looking forward to celebrating our one year anniversary. And then we'll be handing the reins over to Ned for the next actor we're yes covering. i'm excited for our next series we have an actor picked out we uh should we tell let's not we're not going to tell you right now who it is you can find out on our next episode although we could give some sort of hint do you want to go back and forth trading hints <laughs> okay so we will be covering an actor who is who is in shrek 2 although i don't think mm-hmm. we will cover shrek 2 Sure, maybe. maybe. We will be covering an actor who I texted Ned about earlier this week because I discovered that they did a direct-to-video, a movie that was supposed to be released in theaters, <laughs> but wound up being a direct-to-video uh, movie with Meg Ryan. And I texted Ned and said, crossover event? <laughs> that's right, that's right. A movie that, I said, that's a movie that doesn't exist. I've never heard it of such a thing. does not exist. But if you can find out one of Meg Ryan's direct-to-video movies, you might find a hint. <laughs> If you can cross-reference that with Shrek 2, with uh, (laughs) someone who is in um, one of my least favorite movies I ever saw in theaters. (gasps) Ooh, wait. I think one of mine, too. Really? Ooh, that's fun. Yeah, now you and I can guess which (laughs) which movies we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun. So if you can figure out who was in Shrek 2, who was in a direct-to-video rom-com with Meg Ryan, and was also in movies that Caroline and I have just hated... (laughs) 
that may or may not be the same that movie. That may or may not unclear. be the same. I doubt it because I feel like Emily and I were the only two people who saw this film, period. But Okay, we need to have an off mic conversation mm-hmm. about this. But if you could do that, you will find out who our next actor is. Alternately, wait two weeks and listen to our special anniversary <laughs> episode coming up. It should be a blast, whatever it is we do. And uh, then we'll go from there. I like the idea of us like becoming the Riddler with our own podcast and just making our <laughs> listeners go through a bizarre series of clues to mm. figure out what we're covering. No more lies. I can't do a Riddler impression because he had no distinct mannerisms. Anyway. Yeah, you got to go to Jim Carrey for that one. Uh, joygasm! That's something he said in that Forever. <laughs> well, on that note, Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music... Ned is really laughing hard. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy and our logo was designed by Nick Wansarski. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Roll Calling or you can email us rollcalling at gmail.com. That is roll spelled R-O-L-E. Next week, we'll be back with our one year anniversary special. Until then. I forgot I have a job to do now. <laughs> Your face oh my looks so panicked. <laughs> uh, oh, gosh. Uh, what did I write down? What did I write down? Anything. Oh, um, tall, decaf, cappuccino. <laughs> that's something that's happened that's in great. the movie. I really liked that oh, good. moment and your impression Thank of it. Thank you. Let's, let's end this silliness now. <laughs>